All right, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open it up to Genesis 2. If you have one of those black Bibles in front of you, we'll be on page 2. So hopefully you can find that. Don't need the table of contents for that, page 2. All right, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. I'm going to read through 17. And if you will, please stand as we show reverence to God's Word and read it. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man becoming a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pison. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. You guys pray for me. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the word of the Lord. Lord, we live in a, in a time where there are a lot of questions about creation and, and beginnings, and you have recorded it for us. You're, you are the creator. You are the one who spoke in this world and this universe came into existence. Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that we get to celebrate baby dedications, that you are the giver of life, Lord. Uh, We're also thankful when a hurricane comes, you're there to meet our needs. And so, Lord, we still pray for our sister church in Wilmington with all the relief efforts and all the needs that are being met there across the country, but more importantly, that you will meet the spiritual needs there. That maybe many people have saw their their homes and their lives go up in smoke, and and, and they're saying, now what? And, And may you come in with goodness of the gospel, that they see that this, uh, the greatest gift that they need is your son Christ, and with that comes many blessings. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see this morning that we as, as humanity, as humans, as male and female, have been uniquely created and given a unique purpose in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Before we jump into Genesis chapter 2, I have one other quick announcement uh, Daniel and Michelle are pregnant again. Yes. 
they got, they, got three, they got three little boys, and I'm sure the little boys are praying for that little princess to come right along, right? I'm sure they are not praying for a little princess. They're praying for another little brother, I'm sure. But yes, we're thankful for that. But yeah, we're in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start with a question. What is man? What is man? What is woman? When, when you hear the word human being, what pops into your mind? How would you describe what it means to be human? Um, today and throughout centuries, there are a number of answers to that question. And let me highlight a few contemporary ones and see if you guys see a, a, see a theme of, of someone describing what is man and woman. Uh, Mark Twain said this, man is the only animal that blushes. Carl Sagan said this, man is a transitional animal. He is not the climax of creation. Another said this, man is the only animal for whom his own existence is a problem which he has to solve. Do you guys hear a theme? Do you hear a word that, that, that was uh, in all those statements? To be human, according to these individuals, means to be an animal. Well, thankfully, we have Genesis 1 and 2 where God clears that up for us. We, we have a much different understanding as Christians, as followers of the Scriptures, of what it means to be a human, what it means to be a, a male and a female. And last week, Rich did a great job going over um, Genesis chapter 1 and, and us being created in the uh, Imago Dei, the, the image of God and what that means. And we also got a little taste of the creation mandate that, that makes us distinct from mere animals, There's a special relationship that God has bestowed upon us that we are to be image bearers in this world to extend kingdom. And what we see in Genesis chapter 2 today is it really just zeroes in and focuses a little bit more on day six of creation. It, It gives us more detail on what it means to be a distinct human from other animals because sometimes we get caught up living in this Genesis 3 world, don't we? And, we? and we forget why we exist. Well, this morning, Genesis 2 helps us regain our bearings. It puts our feet back on solid ground. It centers us by reminding us that we have been uniquely created and that we have been given a un- unique vocation, or we might say a unique calling. So let's jump right into Genesis chapter 2. First, we see in Genesis 2, verses 4 through 7, we are uniquely created. Uniquely created. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord God made the earths and the heavens. And what we see in verse 4 is we see a a new chapter, a a new stage in Genesis. We could could say that most people, commentaries think that that Genesis 1 through 2, 3 is kind of a prologue, and then it's here in Genesis 2, 4 that the story really begins. Um, Because every time we see this phrase, these are the generation, it is a clue that Moses is focusing on something new, a new stage in the book of Genesis. It appears 10 times, and this will be the, the, the outline which will help guide us through the book of Genesis is this phrase, these are the generations. So the question is, well, what is the focus here? Moses, what is the focus here of this section? This section will go from 2-4 to Genesis chapter 5, when we see that phrase again. And what, what the focus is, is this, what, what happened after God created the heavens and the earth? 
That's going to be the focus in these next couple chapters. Well, well, what happened immediately after God created the heavens and the earth, and he called it very good? And so we see this is a new section. We also see something else. We are introduced to a new name of God. God has given himself a new name here that we are introduced. Look at the the verse again in 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So here we're introduced to a new name. As we, as we know, in, in Genesis chapter 1, God was the focus. He was the creator of chapter 1. Some 35 times in, what, 30 verses, um, his, his, his name was, na- was named. And the name there was Elohim. Every time you see that word God, it was the name Elohim. And what that word Elohim means, I mean, it's talking about his majesty, his supremacy in creation, his transcendence. When relating to creation, it describes God's life-giving sovereign power. That's what the word Elohim means. But here we see Lord, and we see it's capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So when you see that in Scripture, uh, what, what is being pointed out is a new name. It's the Tetragrammaton name of God. It's the, it's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the name when it deals with God's covenant people. It's his name when he's in special relationship with his people, such as in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is at the burning bush and he gets this call to go back and uh, to free uh, the, the, uh, the nation of Israel from Egypt. And, and he's like, well, who shall I say so sent me? And he says, I am. It's the covenant name of God. It's, it's Yahweh. It's Jehovah. And so here we're introduced to the new name. And when we're introduced to this new name in Genesis 2, it, it, it makes and sparks a beginning of a new covenant, a covenant between humanity and the Lord. Especially we'll see that in 2.15 in just a couple moments. But first we need to see that we are uniquely created in verses 5 through 7. So look at verse 5 with me. When no bush was in the field and was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6 says, there was a mist that was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. That's a cool little, a little detail in there. God had his own built-in sprinkler system, this, this mist. The crossing has Eric Bros and ABS systems to make our grass green. God had his own little mist coming up from the ground. But verse 7 is the focus. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now we read that, those of us who have been in church forever, that's like, oh yeah, God breathed into man, he created us from dust. But I mean, really, when we stop and think, words cannot do justice to what is happening in Genesis chapter 2. How man was created. The first observation we see is that man didn't evolve from any kind of animal or any kind of subhuman like Cro-Magnum man. No, the Lord God formed man distinctly from the dust of the ground. This is the physical material in which God used to fashion man. It was, it was dust. And later on in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God gives the man's name, and he names him Adam, which just means red. If I was God, obviously, and I'm not, and I created man from dust, I'd probably keep it simple and just name him Dusty, right? I mean, right? You're created from dust, you just might as well name him Dusty. But I'm not, so therefore his name's Adam, right? All right. Well, the word dust can mean clay or mortar or ash or, or, or earth or ground. I mean, no one really knows exactly what kind of dust was used to form because no one was there. But again, the point is not what we are made of, but how the Lord formed us. 
That's what's on display there. How the Lord fashioned us. And Moses highlights two action, two verbs in man's creation. That we are formed and then he breathed life into us. So first, let's look at that word formed. It means to fashion, to frame, to create, to, to put together. Uh, and here, it's the Lord God is being depicted as an, as an artist or as a potter who sculpts or paints a picture or sculpts uh, the man. Uh, we, we are the outcome of God's creative design and His power. Um, my dad is a professional artist. He's a surrealist. He has shows in New York and Boston. You guys have probably never heard of Michael Santini in ours because he's still alive, right? You know, you, you hear of artists when they die. That's when they become famous. But um, I remember and there were times where he would, on Christmas Day, he would, you know, have to put together the toys that we had. He had to put them together. And, but this isn't what's being described here. It's, it's more that when I would see my dad go and, and, and start to paint, this, this, the creative juices, we will say, started flowing. His, his passion, his, his strokes of the paintbrush with incredible precision, uh, the time he spent on, on the detail of a painting. I mean, it was incredible. He was like in a different world. And this is what we see here. This is what's been described as God here, that as he forms us, he's, he's taking careful time. He's given us specific details He's, he's forming us in a way that is, that is incredible, that's incredibly complex and beautiful. Uh, as we look around, we see that we are, are, are humans, and, but we are look different. We have different little different designs, different hair color, different eye color, different physical features. You know, as we've gone to the crossing and we've talked about man and, and God's incredible creation, we've pointed out a number of incredible statistics. And, and let me just give you a couple more about you, about your body. Uh, first, this is an incredible thing. Did you know that a quarter, 25% of your bones are in your feet, right? 25% of your bones are in your feet. Uh, the stomach acid in our stomach um, can melt coins, can dissolve metal. And if it touched your skin, if it was outside and touched your skin, it would burn right through us. So some of us say, well, maybe we are aliens, right? You know, because we got that kind of thing in our stomachs. Your ears and your nose never stop growing. How about that one? Some of you are a little bit further ahead than others in that category right there, right? And then this one, I don't know what you do with this one. But cornflakes have more genes than people do, huh? What do you do with that? You, you stop eating cornflakes is what you do with that, you know, right? But again, all this is just saying is we look at the human body. We are wonderfully and miraculously formed and created. God's creative power is on display. But not only that, something else has to happen. Not just God fashion us out of the dust of the ground, but something else has to happen. He has to breathe life into us. He breathes it into our nostrils, the breath of life. And when he does that, then Adam became a living creature. Apart from that, he was just a, a beautiful statue like David, the one that Mark, Mark, uh, Michelangelo created. He had to breathe life into us because the Lord, as we know, is life. He has life within himself. He was the self-existent one. He is the aseity of life, the aseity of God. Is that he has life in himself. And so he gives that to us. One commentator says this is warmly personal. 
It has the idea of, of God being face to face with man. And it gives us the kiss of life through his breath. And we become living creatures. This is distinction from what we saw in how God created animals in Genesis chapter 1. Animals are created out of the dust of the ground, but they instantly have life. And here we see a gradual creation. Here we see the Lord taking his time, being more purposeful, more intentional, informing us, informing man. He first fashions us by his hands, and then life comes when he breathes life in us with a personal breath. And when we see this phrase, uh, living creatures, this breath of life, that encompasses all that life is. It's our, it's our soul, our, our spirit that is given to us. It's our emotions, it's our, it's our will, it's our intellect. It's, it characterizes all of life. So what we see here in the very beginning on page two is that we are introduced to the two characteristics that make up human beings. We are physical creatures and we are spiritual creatures. We are physical because God formed us with stuff. He formed us from the dust of the ground. And we are spiritual because God breathed life and gave us our souls. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. said in his answer to What is Man? He wrote this this essay called What is Man? And this is what he said, uh, a short section out of it, quote, This is ultimately that which distinguishes man from uh, animals. He is made to have communion with that which is eternal and everlasting. We cannot imagine an animal writing a Shakespearean play. Uh, We never have seen a group of animals sitting down discussing intricate problems concerning the political and economic structure of society. But man... That being that God has created just a little lower than the angels, he is able to think of a poem and write it. He is able to think of a symphony and compose it. He's able to imagine a great civilization and create it. And along with this strong intellectual capacity in man, there is a will. Man has within himself the power of choosing his supreme end, where animals just follow their natures. What a great quote. That, that helps characterize and see how uniquely that man is created both physically and spiritually by the Lord. And boy, don't we need that today. Don't we need to understand this principle today that we are uniquely designed by God formed and and life has been breathed into us and we now have a, an intellectual capacity and will to, to live life differently. We might think where Martin Luther King Jr. says we've never seen a group of animals sitting down discussing the intricate problems coming with politics. We might hit the pause button and say, well, if anyone has watched politics in the last months, we might say they're acting just like animals, right? They're not acting like they're created in the image of God and treating each other with dignity and respect, They're acting as if they are just trying to uh, be the last one standing, uh, the survival of the fittest, trying to, you know, destroy with words and actions those that disagree with them. We need this today, don't we? We need to be reminded that Genesis chapter 2 says we have been uniquely created by God. Therefore, we should be treating everyone accordingly, regardless of their political beliefs or their ethnicity or where we disagree with one another because we've been created in the image of God. So let us, as we walk through those doors 
this morning, and, and we come in contact with the community that we live in. Let us be instruments of redemption. Let us be instruments of change when we engage in conversation regarding what's happening in our political system in the Supreme Court justice. Whether, wherever you fall on that, let us treat each other with respect and kindness, and let us hear one another. Why? Because we've been created in the image of God. And when we treat others with respect, they will, what? Listen to us in our points of view. So we need this today. This is a great reminder that we've been uniquely created by God. We're not just some animals out there trying to be the last one standing. But we're trying to image the love and the mercy and the grace and the respect of God to one another. So secondly, we have a unique vocation or calling. We see this in the rest of the chapter in verses 8 through 17. Genesis 2.8 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And so what we see here is in Genesis 1.1, we read about the, the summary of creation, right? The, the heavens and the earth, and the, and the heavens meant the, all the billions of galaxies and the planets and stars that God created, the, the atmosphere, and the earth meant earth. When we get to Genesis chapter 2, God focuses on earth, but he even zeroes in a little bit further. He zeroes in on a garden. It is here, the garden, in which God's redemptive historical narrative is lived out. It is here in the garden where God's story is placed. God's story is placed in a garden down by the river. And it's actually four rivers. We see in Pishon, Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. In verses 10 through 14, it describes this incredible uh, area, this, this land in which this garden is placed in. It's, it's lush, it's, it's fertile, it has these incredible stones, gold, onyx, bedlam. Uh, again, it's just a beautiful place. Now, where is this garden? Nobody really knows. Remember, this is pre-flood. Uh, it's probably in the area of the Mesopotamia River Delta, basically modern-day Iraq. Somewhere in there, underneath all the earth, is the Garden of Eden. But again, the point is not where is it, it's what's in it. You see, this is a beautiful garden. Uh, the, the Eden means uh, paradise. It, it equals pleasure. Uh, but there's more than a, it's more than a, just a, a beautiful piece of, of farmland that is satisfying to the eyes and to our soul. Um, other places, the garden has another name. It's known um, in Genesis 13 as, as the garden of the Lord. In, in Ezekiel, um, I think, 28 and 31, it's called the garden of God. Why is it called that? Because it is here in this garden where God first dwelt with man. It is here where his presence is. He's created the world, but he specifically planted this garden to dwell with man. What we see here is the first beginning of what's called the the, the temple. The temple, as we trace uh, throughout Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, is the place where God dwells. And here we see God dwells in the garden. And that's what makes this so awesome and so amazing, that the living God, the Creator who spoke and created Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him, is now walking with him in the cool of the day, in this place, in this garden. And Adam could have fellowship with the Lord without hindrance. What an incredible thought. This is the garden of the God garden of God. 
And it's here in this garden where man receives his unique calling, his unique vocation from the Lord. You see, uh, we looked in, in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that the animals and the, and the birds had a calling. They were to eat, sleep, and, and procreate. That was their calling. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. Well, man also has a calling, and, and a part of that is eating and sleeping and, and being fruitful and multiplying and procreating. But it's, it's much more than that. It's a greater calling. It's a deeper calling. It's a, it's a greater vocation. It's both physical and spiritual. Yes, again, it has to do with eating and sleeping and procreating, but it has to do with subduing the earth. It has to do with taking dominion and managing the creation, as well as working it and keeping it. Uh, we see in Genesis 2.15, this, this mandate is given within a covenant. Covenant is a special relationship between man and God only and specifically. God doesn't make a covenant with the animals or the fish of the sea. No, this is only a special covenant made with man. And throughout the Bible, here's another you know, beginning stage. There's seven major covenants throughout the Bible. This is the first one we see. And they're broken up into two, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And we'll see both as we go through the book of Genesis. The good news now is, is in the New Testament, we live under what's called the New Covenant, which is a covenant of grace that has been promised and fulfilled in Jesus. But those that are reading this in Moses' day, in Moses' context, remember he's writing this uh, to the people in the nation of Israel. They would have read Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and they would have immediately thought of, this is a covenant. This is a covenant between the great king, the greatest king, the Lord, and the lesser kings, his adversaries, humanity. This is what a covenant is and kind of the the markers of a covenant. Uh, There are two kings. There's a greater king and a lesser king. We call it the lesser king in in Genesis 1, the the viceroy uh, or a vassal king. It's It's a ruler exercising authority on behalf of a sovereign. And what happens is the greater king comes to this vassal king or this viceroy and says, I'm not going to destroy you. Um, but here are some agreements. And they, and they come to terms in these agreements. And he says, if you keep these agreements, the greater king, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be a blessing to you. But if you break them, if you rebel, then I'm going to destroy you and you will get judgment. So those are the markers of a covenant. So let's read Genesis two fifteen through 17 and see if you don't hear those markers. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall surely die. Did you guys hear those characteristics of a covenant in there? This is what Michael Lawrence says. He says this. He says, This is the initial covenant made with Adam in Genesis 2. As Romans 5 makes clear, he entered into a covenant as a representative of the entire human race. Uh, its blessings and cursings would fall on all of us. The blessing was implied, the promise of eternal life. The curse was death. The stipulation was to refrain from eating the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as well as working and guarding the garden. That was the covenant that was made. Now, the one thing I want to kind of point out is, is that Sometimes we read these gospel narratives because we're so familiar with them in a kind of a truncated or compressed view. But right now we're in Genesis chapter 2. We're not in Genesis chapter 3, right? We're in Genesis chapter 2. And what we want to see, I think Albert Moore points out correctly, is that Adam at this moment, and we're not sure for how long, 
was executing and walking perfectly, obeying the covenant perfectly. He wasn't sinning. He wasn't rebelling. He was following the commands of the Lord perfectly. He was not tempted by this tree that's called the knowledge of good and evil. It seems. That doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent comes. It, It seems that Adam is just living life and loving the Lord. He's loving the fellowship that he has with God. We see the goodness and the blessing from the greater king, the Lord God, to Adam. Why? Because Adam is obeying perfectly. So we, we got to be careful not to collapse the narrative because we all do this so, so quickly. And what we really want to point out here is we want to see the goodness of God. We want to see the goodness of the garden as a good gift. And when we see the rhythms that we talked about in chapter 1, when we see that when God speaks and His commands are obeyed, there is blessing. There is fruitfulness in our lives. This was the covenant. Adam perfectly is perfectly content with all the gifts that the Lord has given him. He's perfectly content of seeing all these wonderful trees and vegetations. He's perfectly content by eating fruit all the time and not Torchy's tacos, right? As, as, as Rich said last week. You guys didn't get that one last week. I was like, oh man, how you guys not get that one last? That was a good one, Rich. All right. But we see that even Adam gets to eat the fruit from where? The tree of life. Think about that for a second. Adam gets to eat the fruit of the tree of life. What kind of fruit must that have been, right? Man, it, to me, it has to be either a pear or a plum. Who's with me, right? Pear or the plum? We got any of those guys in here? No? All right. Now, we want to remember this tree of life. It comes up quickly again in Genesis chapter 3, but then we won't see it until Revelation chapter 22. But here's the cool thing about this tree of life. You know, I said, we, we wonder what that fruit might be. Well, guess what? We will know what that fruit will be because we will not only see the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth, but we will also get to taste it. Isn't that cool? This tree that's in the garden will also be in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22, 2 says, in the new Jerusalem, there will be the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So I'm pretty good. We're going to have a pear and plum in heaven. All right. We're good there. It's going to have 12 different kinds. All right. So your, 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 your fruit might be in there as well. How cool is that? How priceless is that? That here is this tree that Adam got to enjoy in the garden that one day we will get to enjoy. The tree of life. That's awesome. But what I want to do is just kind of refocus our attention back on Genesis 2.15. And we see in Genesis 2.15 that part of the covenant relationship is this idea of work, is this idea of vocation. And this is where I get the uniqueness of our calling and our vocation. 2.15 says this, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. That word work means to serve it, to work it, to serve it, to cultivate it, and to keep it. That means to protect it. And what we see here in Genesis 2.15, this is the pinnacle of creation. The pinnacle of creation to maybe um, environmentalists or animal rights activists here in, in our world is the creation itself, is the wilderness itself. And, and while, yes, that is awesome and valuable, that's not the pinnacle. The pinnacle of creation 
in Genesis chapter 2 is the garden. It's the garden in which he puts man and woman as his image bearers to to work it, to, to serve it, to expand it, to protect it. That his image, his word, his love, his joy, his grace, his mercy, his pleasure would be expanded through this garden. That's the pinnacle of creation. Not the wilderness itself, as awesome as it is, but the communion between God and man in his place. Another way to think that we might talk about throughout Scripture um, of, the, of, a, of a larger picture of God's story, it's, it's it, God has God's people in God's place with God's presence. That's another way to think about that. And it's in the garden where those, those, those three things are. God with his people in his place. And so when we get to Genesis 2.15, we see that part of uh, this covenant that God is, is work. And work here is good. Work in Genesis chapter 2 is a, is a gift. It's a gift. Now, when you think of the word work, how many of you guys think of it? Oh, man, that's a great gift. Raise your hand, right? Yeah, no hands raising. That's probably pretty good. Oh, maybe one. All right. But yeah, I mean, because most of us live in, a, in the reality of a Genesis 3 world, and work isn't good. It's, it's toil. It's, it's pain. It's a, a necessary evil, right? Because that's how we think of it. But again, I want us to, to, to recapture the theology of work in Genesis chapter 2. Because I think if we, if we think through the grid of, of the good gift of God that He has given us through work, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to change our paradigm when we walk out those doors and wake up tomorrow morning to go to work. Remember, we're in Genesis chapter 2. And we want to image God. And, and, and work is a good gift because God is a worker. God is a protector. And so again, this begins the, the theology of work. And we see that one of the very first jobs that, that Adam has was the, the naming of animals, right? And how cool would that have been that you get to name the animals and the creatures? I would have, I would have loved that. I would have loved that. And we see that Adam, he takes that job and he runs with it. And he's enthusiastic about it. And he's, and he's talking about these animals and he's naming them with these big old syllables, right? You know, he's like saying um, kangaroo, you know? alligator, or how about this one, hippopotamus, right? But then all of a sudden, as it goes on, he's like, whoa, there's, there's a lot of animals. And maybe he's getting a little tired. So when it comes to like the domestic guys, he's just like, dog, <laughs> you know, cat, cow, pig, you know? So he gets this awesome job to name the animals. One other thing I want to point out here is that this, that God could have named the animals, he could have already had that animals all named and the fish in the sea all named and all the creatures. He could have done that. But what does, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He, he delegates his authority to the lesser king, to the viceroy. He delegates his authority to man. Why? Because he's, he's helping man live in his calling. This is a delegated authority. You name the animals, the animals don't name you. Adam, you, you, you call the deer the deer, and a male deer is a buck, and a female deer is a doe. The deers don't name the humans. So what this is showing us is, there's, is God is helping man exercise dominion by giving him his first job to name the animals. Now, with that, I want us to fast forward to, to, to here and now. 
And I want, to, I want us to, to recapture this theology of work in Genesis chapter 2 at some level. And we want to walk through it through this lens that you've heard us talk about, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration lens. Uh, this is the grid in which uh, we should see work because we see all of Scripture through this lens. And so it translates. So first we see creation in Genesis chapter 2, that work is good. We see it's actually a gift. It's not toil. It's not pain. It's actually a joy of Adam. He's, he's called to this. This is a way in which Adam, we see, worships God by living out what God has called him to do. But we second, we'll see next week or two weeks from now in Genesis chapter 3 that the fall comes in. And here work is cursed. Here's where the pain and the toil comes in. That work becomes thorns and thistles. And this is where we live a little bit right now. We feel the pain of Genesis chapter 3 right now. We, we, some of you right now are stressing out about tomorrow because you have a deadline that you don't know if it's going to get met or not. Now, some of you right now, um, maybe you might have a boss that, let's just say, is a little bit overbearing, right? That, that has taken advantage of you. Um, some of you in here have, have felt the pain of losing a job. Uh, we, this is why we equate work that's not a, a blessing, but maybe a curse. Because this is what happened when sin entered. But then we, we also understand that right now we live under the redemption of Christ. That not only does, does Christ redeem our souls, but since He redeems our souls, that means He redeems our mission. And part of our mission is work. Therefore, He redeems our work. So let me just give you quickly three things, three ways to see work as a blessing and not a curse, and how you can be an instrument of change in your workplace. The Lord can use you again as an instrument of redemption at your vocation. And the first thing we see is first that all of work, vocation, is worship. It's first worship. We see this again from Adam, as I've already pointed out, that Adam takes the, the covenant, the, 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 the agreement, say, Adam, I'm giving you my authority. I want you to name the animals. He takes it and runs with it, and that is part of his worship. We, know, we must live in the Genesis 3 world, acknowledge this right off the bat, that most of us in here, we view our lives through a, a false dichotomy of sacred and secular. And what we, when we see our work is we see work as secular. We, we see work as, oh, it's, that's something that's man-made. That's something I have to do. I have to go to work to get money so I can provide for uh, myself and my family. Um, so I can go on vacation, so I retire. It's a necessary evil. It's something I have to do. That's, that's what everyone's doing. It's, it's, it's secular. And then going to church or going to life group or opening our Bible, that's the sacred time. So, so Sunday is sacred, but the rest of the days are not. They're secular. That's how most of us probably views our lives, this false dichotomy of sacred and secular. And we know, if you've been in a good, solid church, like the crossing that teaches the Bible or somewhere else, that you know that all of life is worship. Whatever you do is worship. We know that 1 Corinthians 10 and Colossians chapter 3 says, whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. Many of us have, are, are, are walking through Porterbrook. We have 80 people going through Porterbrook right now in the crossing. It's awesome. And our first lesson was what? About Romans chapter 12, right? About us being living sacrifices. For this is your what? Spiritual worship. Now, does it just say on Sundays be a living sacrifice? No, it's, it's all-encompassing. 
Whatever you do, wherever you're at, your whole life, your body, whatever you do with your body and your life is to be a living sacrifice. It's an act of spiritual worship. And so therefore, vocation comes under that. The, the root word of vocation means calling. It's called out. Voca. And so this is it. Today, when, when we think of calling here, especially in the church, what do we think of? Oh, I'm called to the ministry, right? That's really the only time we really think of calling. Oh, I'm, I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a missionary. But my work is not a calling. Well, throughout history, most people, when they heard the word work or vocation, they associated that with calling. That the Lord specifically called them to that job, to that vocation. Now think about that. If we would accept that grid, that your job, where you work right now, and it could be a student or or where you work, your vocation, it's a calling of the Lord on your life. How would that change your days at work if that's how you approached your job? your vocation. I am called by the Lord to be a college professor at CSU's campus. I I am called by the Lord to be a painter. I am called by the Lord to be an engineer. I'm called to be the Lord as a a hairstylist, as a stay-at-home mom, as a body man, as a car mechanic, as whatever your calling is. God has called you and put you there. Therefore, It can be and should be an act of worship. What would happen if you took this grid and tomorrow morning your your prayer before you got into work was something like this? Lord, I know you have called me to this job and this vocation at this point in time. Lord, it is my prayer that when I walk in here that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How would that change your day tomorrow when you walk into work? Would it change it? I bet you it would change it quite a bit. And I actually think that you would see your work not as toil, but actually a gift from God in which you get to worship him. And we see this again with Adam in the garden as he is following the commands of his boss. Secondly, we see work is community. Work is community. Not only is it worship, but work is community. I love how one defines it as this. He says, when someone asks, what do you mean by that work is community? He says, this is what I mean. What I mean by that is that work is done with others and it's done for others. That's what work is. It's done with others and it's done for others. And the Lord says, it's done for community. And that is a massive principle in Scripture. See, at the crossing, we have this saying that we want you to take the gospel where you live, work, and play. Right? Those communities, those are the three groups that that we identify as your community, where you live, where you do life, uh, uh, where you work, and and where you play. And again, what would happen if you view tomorrow when you go to work, wherever that may be, as have an opportunity to, to, to walk in community and be a blessing to my coworker? I mean, first and foremost, you know, we, we, we work with people and we use their skills and they're there to create a project or do whatever that is to do. And when we, when we go to work, first thing we want to do as Christians is do their best possible job. We want to be the greatest workers uh, in that company. If they have an employee of the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, employee of the month, that you as Christians, that me as Christians, we should be in the running for that every month because we are, everything we're doing, working for the glory of God. But secondly, 
The people you work with are longing for community just like you long for community and I long for community. We all want to be a part of a group, and work is a part of that. So what would happen is if you would walk in there and not just do the job, but know that you're there for something even more important, it's that that person, that coworker that you work with, that you have been put there by God to help him experience a little taste of the garden, a, a little taste of community through your actions. Again, what an incredible opportunity we have as Christians to be instruments of change, be instruments of redemption in our workplace. We'll see this next week with Adam and Eve. Right now, Eve hasn't been created yet. And we'll see next week that God says, hey man, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to make him someone compatible. I'm going to bring community to him because he needs community to be an image bearer. So that's the second thing we see. They see that work is community. And then finally and thirdly, we see this, that work is love. Work is love. Work, your vocation, is one of the best places you can live out the great commandment. The great commandment is what? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love what? Your neighbor as yourself. I love what Martin Luther said, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the theologian. He said this, God does not need your good works. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Isn't that good? God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your community does. Your city does. You see, we, when we love God, our vertical relationship, as we talk about here all the time, when we love God, that will inform all of our horizontal relationships. And part of our horizontal relationships are those that we work with. Therefore, when we love God, He calls us to love our neighbor, love those that we work with. Therefore, we will love. We, we, we go in there through this grid that my coworker, the, the job I'm doing, I'm doing it not just to make a buck, which is good. Everyone needs to make a little cabbage so we can provide for our, you know, our, our, our friends, our, I mean, for our families and et cetera, buy a house and a car. And that's all good. We want, making a buck is good. But more importantly, we're there to love. That's why we have this job. We're, we're there to show God's love. Uh, I, I, I also often think of every Monday we get our trash picked up. And I don't know about you, but I love those guys, right? When they come up on Monday. When they show up on Monday, it's like I, I, I put my trash out. I, I love those people that are working in sanitation. They have one of the most important jobs there are to our community, Right? If they didn't exist, if they didn't do their job, it would look a lot different here in Fort Collins, and it definitely smell a lot different here in Fort Collins, right? More like Greeley or something like that, right? Just kidding, right? I'm sure they do great work in Greeley as well. But you know what I'm saying. If you're called and you're in the sanitation, man, what you do matters. You're, you're loving your city because you're making it a, a, a sanitary place to live. And, that, and we, can, we can highlight any other vocation in here. Every vocation is built on the premise of love because you're doing something that is providing a service or good for the community. You are loving your neighbor by doing a good job at your work. So your work, when you work hard, when you wake up early, when you, when you put the time and the effort in, you give maximum effort. You're getting the Employee of the, the Month awards. 
it benefits your neighbor. But guess what? Their work benefits you and me as well. And man, if that is, if that is our view on work, how much better is Fort Collins or Northern Colorado going to be? So as you and as I approach work tomorrow, approach it through the lens of Genesis chapter 2 and the goodness of God. Approach it first and understand that you have been uniquely fashioned and and formed and you've been given life and these faculties of intellect and and will and and love that the animal kingdom doesn't have. And use those to, to, to bless one another in your conversations. And secondly, be reminded of the unique calling that you have on your life. That wherever you work, you can bring the love of God there. That you can worship God there and be an instrument of change. Man, do you see how relevant Genesis chapter 2 is us, with us today? Adam had this perfectly with God. Now, we, we know that Genesis 3 comes and that there's sin and, and we're waiting for the Lord to come back. But, but right now, we can still impart a little bit of the garden in a Genesis 3 world because we have the, the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. And then we have the mission of God. And we are now still His ambassadors, His viceroys to be image bearers of God and to work and to extend His kingdom on earth. So let's do that tomorrow. Let's, let's do that as soon as we walk out the doors, but in particular tomorrow as we wake up and attack Monday. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your word. Thank you for Genesis chapter 2. Thank you that as we look at Genesis chapter 2, you, you, you tell us in more detail that we are, we are above the animal kingdom. And we're a little bit below the angelic realm, as Psalm 8 says. And so with that understanding, with, with knowing that is our identity in you, because of what you have done for us through the gospel, Lord, may we be great viceroys. May we be great ambassadors. May we be um, those that show the world that we serve the greater king, the greatest king, by our, our words of humility and our, our words of grace and our words of truth and our words bathed in love. And Lord, I also pray that we would, we would see our work as the opportunity to, to worship you, the opportunity to live in community and, and, and the greatest opportunity is to, is to show the world and to help the world experience your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.